and that that's the greatest message that I, I could give you and you know what all down through the centuries God has been manifesting that reality but you know what there have been some horrendous things that have taken place on this planet through the years that God has looked at, God has watched, and the truth is, He hasn't missed them. And there's just some things, man, that, you know, and I guess we all have those little certain things that just kind of get in our craw, but I, I go back historically, and I, I can see some things that took place in the Word of God, and I just, I, I, I'm reading that, and I'm watching God in His grace and his mirth, mercy, and I see him extending his long suffering, and I'm just thinking to myself, I wish that he would just go ahead and clean the house with him. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you come along in church history, and here, here's Nero, the emperor in the first century. And Nero has an absolute hatred to the point of a passion against the people who believe the very same thing that you and I believe in this room today. And, and the Bible talk, or the history records for us all of the horrendous stuff that this guy used to do. Fire broke out in Rome. In fact, most people, most historians believe that Nero started it himself. It got the people all in an uproar. And so what Nero did is he blamed it on the people that believe what you and I believe. He blamed it on those sorry, no good Christians. And what he did is he turned the populace against those people and he would drag them into the Colosseum and put them in bags and feed them to wild animals. And the crowds would cheer as people that believed what you and I believe were torn to bits by those wild animals. And I'm just telling you, it's a good thing that I ain't God. Because I would have taken that chump and I would have just... He would take Christians, bring them into his garden, have them smeared with tar and pitch, and he would have them positioned out in his garden. He would lean back in his on his balcony in a reclining chair and have them lit. He called them his torches and they would burn to light his garden and I'm just telling you man it's a good thing I ain't God is it a good thing you ain't God because I'm just telling you man right out of heaven I'd just take my little pinky and bang. you've heard me talk about those three girls three teenage girls from Thessalonica Kionia, Agape, and Irene. Do you remember the story? Three teenage girls who, just like a lot of the teenagers in this room, came to the point where they understood that the God of the Bible was the one and true God who took their sin and died on their behalf, and they entered into a personal relationship with God through what Jesus Christ had done. Word got out about these three girls and their, their great faith, and so they were brought before the tribunal. They were brought in. First of all, Kionia and Agape were brought in, and they were asked to bow to the gods of the, the heathen gods of Thessalonica. And, and here is, is Kionia, here is Agape, and they looked at those men and said, You can hang it, baby. Because we are not going to bow to those idols. We're not going to eat those things that you have sacrificed to those idols. We will not do that. And they said, okay, fine. And they brought Irene, the youngest. She was 18. They brought her in. And they said, we're going to give you one more chance to eat the, what has been sacrificed to these gods. We're going to give you one more chance to bow your knee. And if not, we're going to burn you alive. They said, well, you better get the fire going, baby, because we ain't doing it. And right in front of Irene, they burnt those girls to an absolute crisp. And then they looked at Irene and said, now, we're going to ask you to bow to these gods, 
and we're going to ask you to eat what we have sacrificed to these gods or you will follow suit with your sisters. And she said, well, go ahead and start the fire because I ain't going to do it. And before they burned her, they took that precious 18-year-old girl. And I don't think you've got to have a daughter like I do that has trusted Jesus Christ to have this just grab a hold of you. They took that 18-year-old girl, took her out into the streets, and one after another, they had the soldiers come and rape that girl in the streets. And then when they were all done, they burnt her just like they did their sisters. And I'm just telling you, man, I don't know how God did it. Because if I'm God, I'm just telling you, I'm going to take every stinking one of those soldiers and I'm going to just... Oh. Does that... Am I just... Is it that I'm that carnal? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And then... Talk about not understanding something. In 1972, there was a street urchin from the city of Miami, Florida, who walked around calling the shots in his life like he thought he owned the world. He found himself in a church a lot like this one, and some guy opened a book and began to talk about what Jesus Christ had done. And that sorry, no good sinful 15-year-old teenager came down and had the audacity to ask the God of heaven to forgive him of his sin. And I don't for a second understand, but God did it. I don't understand it. And you know what? You see, it's real easy for me to look at the sin that took place in Thessalonica and the sin that took place in Nero's garden and in those Colosseums and go, yeah, God, get them. But if we turn loose God to go get them, then this 15-year-old street urchin from the city of Miami would have never had a chance to walk that aisle and say, God, be merciful to me. A sinner. You know what the reality is? I think their sin was worse than mine. And you know what? It's easy for us to forget that our sin is just as putrefying to God as all of that stuff I just told you about. You know one of the things that just kind of messes my mind up is God gives Adam this command don't eat of this tree in the day that you do, you'll die. He eats of the tree, and you remember what happened? God comes down into the garden, and he pulls together Eve and Adam and the serpent, and he says, okay, now, here's what's going to happen because of what y'all did. And he begins to go through it, and as he's explaining what's going to happen, he says to the serpent that he's going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and his seed, virgin birth. And he says in that whole process, what's going to take place is you will bruise his heel. That's the crucifixion. And he says that in that whole process, the one that is bruised in his heel is going to bruise your sorry, no good, lousy head. <laughs> what was brought forth through the resurrection and will actually have fulfillment at the second coming of Christ. Now listen. In the garden, because of one man's sin, God had already said, you're going to bruise his heel. That's the crucifixion. You understand that? So now listen. If nobody else had ever sinned, 
What we could do is we could go into the book of John, chapter 18 and 19, and we could begin to watch and see all of the things that unfolded in the crucifixion. And you know why he is beaten beyond human recognition? Do you know why they put that crown of thorns on his head? Do you know why they pounded those nails into his hands, into his feet, and lifted him up on that cross? Do you know why all that was happening? It was because a guy in a garden ate the wrong piece of stinking fruit. That was it. He didn't rape anybody. He didn't go out and get drunk. He didn't murder anybody. The whole crucifixion, the whole bloody mess was all a result of one guy who in one day ate the wrong piece of fruit. And listen, all of God's wrath being poured out on his son, you know why? Because of that simple little sin. And you see, when we come along and we think that our sin really isn't all that bad because we haven't burnt Christians at the stake and we haven't raped anybody and we haven't done this and I haven't done that, you know, you know what, y'all? We've lost sight of the holiness of God because every disobedience is to God as horrendous as all of the stuff that I've explained this morning. And while God is this God and praise his name that he is, that he is merciful and gracious and long-suffering. While God has been exercising that love and, and his grace and compassion for the last 6,000 years, and that's basically the, the time period that we're dealing with, even though he has been manifesting his love and grace like that, he's warned that there will be a day of judgment against sin. You know, we, we look at all of that stuff and we go, how could God not deal with that? And, and all along, God says, I'm a God of mercy, I'm a God of grace, I'm a God of love and compassion, and I'm tenderhearted and long-suffering. Hey, but there is coming a day. In fact, in, in the same verse that we were just looking at just, just a couple of seconds ago, it goes on in verse 7, and it says this, And that will by no means clear the guilty. And folks, that's all of us. The word clear is also translated in other places in the Scripture. It's translated free. It's translated acquit. God says, listen, I'm a God of love and compassion and mercy, long-suffering. However, I am also a God of judgment. And I will not clear the guilty. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. God says, there's coming a day of judgment, and all unrighteousness, all ungodliness will be dealt with. And he comes along in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5, and he says this, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart. You know what he's saying? When you refuse to repent, and here's the deal. God is saying, I'm a God of mercy and love and compassion. Will you come? Will you come to me? Will you repent? And God says that when we are impenitent, when we refuse to repent, he says what we do is we treasure up unto ourselves wrath, against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God is going to deal with sin. We just happen to be living in a time where God is dealing with us according to his mercy and his grace. And when we come to Revelation chapter 15, John reveals to us that God's wrath against sin has been filling up into seven storage containers that God calls Vials, and this is this is the way that this thing comes down. Yes, we can look back and for six thousand years see that God is gracious and loving and forgiving and all of those things that He said. But now, listen. What God is trying to get us to see is that there has never been a sin. There has never been one unrighteous deed that has ever been done by anybody on this planet. There has never been one unrighteous thought. 
There has never been one unrighteous word. There has never been one injustice in all of human history that God has ever missed. There's never been one time that he just looked at something and said, well, you know, whatever. What God says here and what's taking place in Revelation 15, 16 is this is that period of time at the end of the tribulation period when when God's wrath has been filled up and God says, that's enough. That's it. Now, he's been dealing with us in mercy and grace. But while that's happening, what he's showing us here in Revelation 15 is that wrath has been filling up in these storage containers, these, these vials. And you know what, y'all? I, I, what I wish is I wish that God would just this morning somehow let us have a, a glimpse into the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony, as it's called there in verse 5 of Revelation 15. And just look at those, those seven vials and see where they are. Because I'm quite certain they're real close to being filled up. Now, what we're dealing with in Revelation 16 is that time when they are filled up. It's that time at the end of the tribulation period. Now, there is, there is more that needs to be filled up in those vials. Because in the tribulation period, let me tell you, God's wrath is going to be filling up. But just so that you got the context, in Revelation chapter 16, it's that time when they're filled. And, and, and the way that Revelation 15 verses 5 through 7 say that it's going to happen is this. God is going to bring the seven angels into the throne room. Again, what he calls the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. He's going to bring them into the throne room. The four beasts who are at the four corners of the throne, God's going to point to one of them and one acting for all. He's going to take the seven vials and he's going to distribute those to the seven angels and he's getting ready to send these guys out. Now, in chapter 16 and verse 1, what John says is, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And, of course, that great voice is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was Roman numeral one on our outline. The judgment commanded. The judgment commanded. God, these seven angels have these vials where the wrath of God has been filled up. And now it's time for God's wrath to be poured out. And then we looked at number two. The judgment commenced. The judgment commenced. And he says in verse 2, and the first went, okay, the first angel goes and he begins to pour out these vials. And we saw the pouring of the first vial was the traumatic sores that come upon men. Verse 2 goes on, he poured out his vial upon the earth and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshiped his image. And what we find is going to take place when God's wrath is unleashed, when God begins to pour his wrath out during the tribulation period, is all of those who have bowed their knee to worship the Antichrist, the beast, all of those people that have taken his mark, which is going to be what will happen for all of those who worship him, all of those people will receive a, a, all over their body terrible, excruciatingly painful putrefying, terrible sores. And it's going to come on all of those who have worshipped the beast. Then the second vial, the pouring of the second vial, is the toxic seas, which is very closely related to the pouring of the third vial we've called the tainted streams. And verse 3 says, And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man. And every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. Verse 3 is the salt water. Verse 4 is the fresh water. And what's going to take place as God pours out his wrath through these second and third vials is every single drop of water on this planet is immediately going to turn into blood. Verse 3 says, as the blood of a dead man. And we went into the description of all of that. We, we lost a few people out of the room last week as we explained it literally. So we won't go into the description 
of what it really means when God says, as the blood of a dead man, but it's going to be a horrible, stinking, scary mess. Because if you're going to drink any water at this period of time in the tribulation period, the only thing that you can find on this planet to drink is blood. And then the pouring of the fourth vial is the torrid sun, the burning sun, if you will. Look look at verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And as we ended last week, what I was trying to get you to see is that there is a a very, very important principle that we need to make sure that we don't miss in what we're seeing through these vials. The principle that you don't want to miss is the principle of sowing and reaping that we find in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, look at it. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now now listen, that principle has applied all down through the ages, all down through human history. The principle of God saying, you are going to reap according to how you've been sown or how you've sown. What we have in Revelation chapter 16, what we're actually seeing here, through the pouring of the seven vials is the ultimate fulfillment of this Galatians 6, 7, and 8 principle of sowing and reaping. And what God's letting us know in this chapter is that man will ultimately reap exactly what he has sown. And the way that I've been trying to state this in terminology that you and I can understand is that when the final analysis, God is going to give every single one of us exactly what we want. As we go through all of this and we're seeing these, these marks, these, these, these terrible sores all over the bodies of these people, as we see them being forced to drink blood and deal with, with that, as we see them scorched from the sun, do you, know, do you understand? God's given them exactly what they wanted. Because you see, for these people, for us to get to where we are in Revelation chapter 16, you know what, we we had to come through Revelation chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. And all along, you know what God's been saying? Would you just repent? Would you please come? Would you repent? Would you repent? The door is open. Would you come? Would you come? And you see in in the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, you know what it says? Now now listen real carefully because some of you folks in this room, you, you need to understand in this principle of sowing and reaping, you will reap what you sow. It's it's a settled fact. It's the principle you don't want to miss in all of this. You see, what it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, is that the Antichrist is going to come on the scene, just like we're talking about here, the beast. And he's got a lie that he's the Christ, and in order to buy or sell anything, you have to take his mark. Okay? And now, now listen. God says that for the people who had the opportunity to hear the truth of the Word of God, I mean, that is, they actually they sat in a service like this one where somebody was talking about the God of the Bible, explaining that the God of the Bible is holy and we're not, and the only way that you can come to Him is through the offering of His Son, through His death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible says that for those who have had the opportunity to have heard the truth, but because they have pleasure in unrighteousness, say, I don't want the truth. Now, if you don't want the truth, what do you want? You want to lie, and you lie to yourself. 
And you know what God says in the tribulation period? If you want to lie, okay. You see, that's what you sowed. I want to lie. I don't want to deal with facts. I don't want to deal with truth. I, I want to lie to myself, and I want to keep going in my own sinful ways, in my own pleasure that I'm having in my sin. And, and, and God says, listen, if that's what you sow, you will read that in the tribulation period. And what God says is that he will send strong delusion to you so that you will believe the lie of the Antichrist, and you will bow down and you'll worship him and you'll take his mark. And God is saying, if you want to lie, if that's what you are going to sow, just be prepared. Because that's what you're going to reap. What we're seeing here is those that receive that mark, those are the ones who get marked with that terrible sore. God says, okay, you want a mark? Fine. I'll give you a mark. Those are the ones that receive that terrible, terrible sore. The ones that bow to the Antichrist and worship him, according to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, those are the ones that the Antichrist will use to track down all of the people who are refusing the mark. They, they search for them for their blood, it says in Revelation 6, 9. And God says, you want blood? fine. When my wrath is poured out, that's exactly what you'll get. You'll get blood, and you'll get your fill of it. In Revelation 13, the way that the false prophet got the people to bow down, you know how he got them to do it? He gave them this incredible sign where he calls down fire out of heaven. God says, oh, you're looking for a sign? You, you want fire out of heaven? You want to you want to sow that? Oh, okay. That's exactly what you'll reap during the tribulation period. That, that sun is going to come down. And, and now listen. We can come through all of that, and we can, we can miss this. But there's a very key application that I want to make sure that we're, that we're not missing in this. And that is, am I prepared to reap according to how I am sowing. And, and now listen, there, there, those of you that are here today and you've never entered into a personal relationship with Christ, I'm, I'm not trying to freak you out through this, really. What, what I want to do is I want to just give you the truth of the Word of God, but I need to ask you, are you prepared to reap all of the things that we've talked about in the beginning of, of this message, are you prepared to do that? Are, are you really wanting to sow rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the rejection of his truth? Is that really what you're prepared to begin to reap in just a few years from now? And, and when I ask you to be thinking long and hard about that, because as we talked about earlier, He's a God of mercy that is inviting you to come to him today. But he's been warning all along, his wrath is filling up and there will come a day of judgment and that wrath will be poured out and this is the way that it's going to happen. Are you prepared for that? But you know what? There's a lot of us that do name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in this room this morning that have almost forgotten that the principle of sowing in reaping is a principle that just goes across the board. And I just want to ask you, are you prepared to reap what you're presently sowing in your life right now? Are, are you really prepared for that? And, and I mean, we can, we can just begin to, to just go through the, the, the gamut of life, and, and let's just let's just do it for a sec. You want to? Let's don't miss the principle. You know what? Some of us are are, are doing such a diligent job of teaching our children, and we're teaching our children principles about authority, 
And we're telling them this is what the Bible says about authority, and this is the way yours respond to my authority. And you know what we're you know what we really think in our minds? That we are going to reap according to how we have taught. That is not the principle. We're going to reap according to what we have sown. And you can tell your kids till you are absolutely blue in the face all the principles of authority that you want to tell them. And yet, if with the authorities that God has placed in your life, you're doing something different, let me just tell you, teach them all you want. You're going to reap in your kids what you're sowing in your life. And, and you know what? For some of you, that is the most blessed truth that you've heard all morning. Because, man, in the authorities in your life, man, that's a, that's a, a no-brainer. Let's just, man, no problem. And you know what? I believe you'll reap that with your kids. Let me talk to you men for just a sec. Hey, men, if we reaped in our wife's actions what we sow in our thoughts, you prepared to reap according to how you're sowing in the things that you think about members of the opposite sex? Are you ready to, to reap that in your wife? Or if you have a teenage daughter, are you ready to reap that in her? All the things that you fantasize about women in, in your world? We could do it in, in terms of finances. You know what? Some of you, man, you want to be in charge of your finances. And yeah, I know the Bible talks about, you know, the way that we're upon the first day of the week, lay by in store and... And we don't talk a lot about this, to be quite honest with you. If you're a guest with us, you happen to come in about one of those times, about once every five years, where we do talk about what God tells us. We, we, don't, we don't hit the tithing word a whole bunch, but tithing is most definitely a biblical principle. It's a, it's a jumping in place as far as our stewardship is concerned. And, and you know what? Some of us are, what we're, what we're sowing is God, I just want to be in charge of mine. I don't want you messing with my money. Are you prepared to reap that? Are you, are you really prepared to just, it's, it's yours, and you're going to call the shots with that thing? Did, did you receive your, your giving record from 2000 th this week? If you didn't, it's probably going to come on Monday. You know what? It would be a great opportunity for you just to look at your, your giving record in 2000 and just say, okay, now let's just say that God was going to base my income in the year 2001 based on what, if this represented a tenth, okay? So just take your giving record and multiply that times 10 and let's say that's what you reaped in in 2001. Are you prepared to do that? You know what? The, the cool thing for some of you is, man, you would get the biggest raise you ever got in your life, man. It would be incredible. It'd be a wonderful thing. Hey, the principle of sowing reaping isn't just a bad thing. It's also a good thing. But let me just ask, are you prepared financially? If God just took you up on it and said, okay, if that's a tenth, if that's what you want to be a tenth, we can arrange that. Are you prepared for that? And, and, I, I, okay, now, now, man, let the Spirit of God apply this wherever he needs to apply this in your life. I, I'm asking you, is there anything that you're sowing right now in your life that if God just said, okay, there you go, if that's what you want, here it comes. Are you prepared to deal with Reaping what you're sowing? And, and now listen, if not, let's, let's let the seriousness of this chapter bring us to a point to where we come to a service like this, and, and while all of us that know the Lord are saying, oh yes, I hope there's some people here that are going to listen to this and will so understand the principle of sowing and reaping that what they're going to do is they're going to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Oh my goodness, I hope they're hearing that. 
And the guy that's running his gums up here is saying, and I just hope that all of us that are saying that are also looking at our life saying, am I really prepared to reap what I'm sowing? And so, is there something that in your life today you need to nail down and say, oh God, there's, this has no place in the life of somebody that names your name. I have been sowing disobedience in this area and today I repent I turn from that I confess that is sin and, and you know what is is real cool God's gracious and merciful and long-suffering and he says if you'll confess your sin I'm faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness but please don't just sit here today and just let the principle of sowing and reaping pass you by without you making application in, in your own life. Okay, so that's the, the judgment commanded, the judgment commenced, and now let's look at the judgment completed. The judgment completed. We, we, we come to a, we, we, we turn a corner here as we come to, to Revelation chapter 16 and, and verse 10 through 20. You see, to, to this point, the land has been affected. The, the water supply has been affected. Man himself has been affected in, 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 in several different ways. But listen, the Antichrist is still calling the shots down on the earth. He's still, he's still running things, and at the pouring of the fifth vial, what we find is that the domains of the beast are ruined. The domains of the beast are ruined. And would you look at verses 10 and 11 with me? And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. The fifth vial is poured out, notice, upon the seat of the beast. And this is done by the fifth angel, it says in, in verse 1. Now, I, I want you to just think with me about what we have, have learned in our study of Revelation and over the last several years. We know that at the four corners of the throne, there are four, what? Four, four beasts, right? Do you remember when we were in Revelation chapter 4 and we saw them for the first time? What we did is we went back into the book of Ezekiel and we began to see that the four beasts were actually four cherubim. Do you remember that? And we talked about that there was not just four of them, but at that time, in eternity past, there was a, a fifth cherub whose name was Lucifer, who was closest to the throne. And the Bible says he covered the throne. The name Lucifer, do you remember what it means? It means light bearer. The fifth cherub was the light bearer, and he had a a throne, you remember, on the earth? And would you look at your study sheet? Is it not rather coincidental that God dispatches the fifth angel to pour out darkness upon the seat or the throne of the one who at one time was the fifth cherub, radiating God's light from his throne? God says, listen, I've got, if you want to talk about sowing and reaping, let me just tell you, I'm not going to miss a trick here. I'm going to take that fifth cherub who used to radiate that light from a throne, and I'm going to take the fifth angel to cast down darkness upon that throne during the tribulation period. Now, I would say that's just highly coincidental, would you? Look at, look at another key word in this, the beast, and we have seen from Revelation 13 and verse 1 that that is, of course, who? The, the Antichrist, okay? 
this is the one, just to get it in perspective, the one in eternity past who said, I will exalt my what throne. I will be like the Most High. He's always wanted a throne. He's always wanted to rule and reign on the earth. This is this Antichrist. And notice another key phrase, the seat. The darkness, what it says in verse 10, and the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the, the seat of the beast. The seat is the place of authority. This seat is referred to in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 13 as Satan's seat. And, and, and you're just going to have to hold on for just a little while. We're real close to getting into Revelation chapter 17 when we find out what it is that is that, that one world religion that the Antichrist is going to be using during the tribulation period. But just to give you a little hint, it is based at the city of Seven Hills. And that's right there in Revelation chapter 17. Basically, what we're going to find is that the seat of the beast is the papal chair. It, that is going to be the place where he, he rules and reigns over the earth during the tribulation period. It, it is rather interesting, I think, that the word ex-cathedra, when the Pope speaks ex-cathedra, when he is speaking infallibly, do you know what ex-cathedra means? Literally, it means out of the chair. And God says... Antichrist is going to come, he's going to use a false system of religion, and he's going to have authority over the world, and at the pouring out of the fifth vial, that fifth angel is going to come and put darkness right there and a direct hit at the seat of authority. And then notice another key word in this whole thing is we're just trying to understand a little bit of what's, what's happening with this fifth vial. No, notice this next phrase. His kingdom. His kingdom. And as we begin to talk about his kingdom, let me just remind you of a few key principles of Bible study. First of all, what I'm calling the Ecclesiastes 3.15 principle. Do you remember it? What Ecclesiastes 3.15 says is this. That which hath been is what? Now, and that which is to be hath already been. That which hath been is now, and that which is to be hath already been. Okay? You know what God's trying to get us to see here? What, what he's saying is that you can learn a lot about the future by looking into history. You, you, can, you, you can learn a lot about what's going to take place in the future by looking back over your shoulder and seeing what took place in history. And there's a, there's a few examples of this, and I'm going to have to just try to streamline a lot of this stuff. But in the book of Second Chronicles, what you have is there is a Gentile king who allows the Jews to come back into their homeland and rebuild the temple. You come into the book of Ezra, and it's the same exact thing. The Gentile king issues a decree permitting the Jews to come back into their homeland to rebuild their temple. And, and what we begin to find out through God's record of this is that that's going to be something that happens twice. We know that with the Balfour Declaration, what took place is a Gentile king of England permitted the Jews in the last century, the 20th century, to come back into their homeland to begin the process of rebuilding their temple. The oracle aspect of this thing in the book of Ezra what it says in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 13 is that among those that returned back in Ezra's day, it says the children of Adonikam, 660 and 6. Okay, and we're just cruising along and saying, okay, what, what's happening here? Is the Gentile king is letting the Jews come back into the homeland and they're going to rebuild their temple. And among those that come in is this guy, Adonikam, and yeah, he's got 600... 60 and 6 kids. But when you begin to put that into the Ecclesiastes 3.15 principle, what you begin to see is a Gentile king in the 20th century is going to issue a decree allowing the Jews to come back into the homeland to rebuild their temple. And among them will be one whose name is Adonikam. It comes from two Hebrew words, 
Adonai meaning Lord and Cam meaning rebellion. Among those that are going to be coming back as the Jews are rebuilding this temple is a Lord of rebellion. And oh, listen, you'll be able to recognize him because his number is 666. God says, now listen, if you want to learn something about the future, look back over your shoulder what took place in history. It'll teach you, it'll teach you a lot. But, but there's something else we need to factor in as we're looking at this thing of his kingdom, and that is the law of first mention. The law of first mention. And some of you are very familiar with this. Just as a reminder, and maybe for some of you folks that are newer to the Bible, just so that you can understand, that one of the key principles that we learn from the Bible is that the first time a key word or concept is mentioned in the Bible... God uses it to teach you something significant about his usage in the rest of the Bible. Okay? And, and, and maybe just a, a quick illustration or two. For, for example, the first time that the word love is found in the Bible. Now, if you're going to try to use this principle, do remember that there's various forms of each word. Love, lovest, loved, you know, loves, all, all that kind of a deal. So, so just make sure you remember that. But the first time that you find love in any shape or form is in Genesis 2.2.2. Genesis 22.2 is a great way to remember it. 2.2.2. Okay? And it talks about, look at it. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And you know what you find out the first time that the word love is mentioned in the Bible? The first time the word love is mentioned in the Bible, it's used in the context of a loving father who is offering his only begotten son as a sacrifice. And if you check out Genesis chapter 22, what you find is that the son is as good as dead to the father, but he receives him back after three days. And you know what? Just from that little usage of the word love... What you got is God saying, I so love the world that I gave my only begotten Son that whosoever will believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life because He's not only going to die and be buried, but at the third day, He's going to rise from the dead to allow you to have a relationship with me. I mean, just from that little gig right there. In Genesis chapter 35, in we see another of the, the law of first mention. The first time that the word Bethlehem is used in the Bible. You see it in Genesis 35, drop down on the screen there to verse 19. And, and now listen, what's happening in this passage is it's associated with Bethlehem. And what you find here is that somebody is dying in order to bring forth life. Okay? And, of course, that's really the whole message of the Bible, that there was one from Bethlehem who came into this world for the sole purpose of dying and being buried in order that we might be born again, that we might have life. And you'll notice in verse 17 that it's Rachel here who comes into the city of Bethlehem and she's experiencing hard travail, uh, uh, travail and hard labor. And, and, and what's interesting is that the word Rachel... The word Rachel means you, not Y-O-U. E-W-E. Do you know what a, a, a U is? A U is a female sheep. Okay? And what is it that a female sheep delivers when she gives birth? A, a what? A, a lamb. And is it starting to come together for you? A woman in Bethlehem giving birth to a lamb. And, and look at verse 18. You'll notice that the midwife makes a prophecy. And notice the wording, Fear not, thou shalt have this son. And in Luke chapter 1, another lady is going to give birth to a lamb in Bethlehem, this one being the Lamb of God. And she too receives a prophecy. Remember the angel came in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, and said, Fear not, thou shalt bring forth a son. Notice also in verse 18, that Rachel brings forth this child. She calls him Benoni. You know what Benoni means? Son of my sorrow. 
the father looks at him and says, no, his name is Benjamin. You know what Benjamin means? The son of my right hand. Isaiah 53 and verse 3 calls Jesus a man of sorrows. But if you look at the scripture, what you begin to find out is the father looks at him and says, no, this is my beloved son who's going to take his place right here at my right hand. Law first mention. God's going to take that Bethlehem thing and he's going to tell you the entire story of the Bible just through the mention of that, that little word. And so let's do the same thing. Now, that's just to give you an idea about the, the, the principle. Let, let's do that same thing now with the word kingdom. The word kingdom. Now, now listen. The theme of the Bible is all about a kingdom. God put Adam and Eve in that garden and wanted them to establish his kingdom. He wanted them through their physical relationship to bear sons and daughters who would be a part of his kingdom. Now, of course, you got to factor in that Lucifer, that we've talked about this morning, he once had a throne that was in, in Eden, the garden of God, the Bible says, in Ezekiel uh, chapter 28. And, and, and what we begin to see is that Lucifer led a rebellion. He wanted to rule and run on the earth. He didn't want to give that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that's the theme of the Bible. The fact that Jesus Christ is going to establish a kingdom on this earth. Lucifer held a position and he wanted to, he said, I will be like the Most High. I'll exalt my throne. And of course, through that, he lost that place. But now don't miss the fact that what this book is all about is all about God moving to put his son on that throne and it's all about the devil doing everything within his power to keep that from happening to get his his own sorry self on that throne and all of history is is really all about that and then we come to Genesis chapter 10 to the first mention of the word kingdom and it's all about this guy by the name of Nimrod who desires to be the king in this kingdom and the name Nimrod happens to mean rebellion okay so you got a king whose name means rebellion and what the scripture says is that he is hunting something as you compare scripture with scripture what you find out is he is hunting men to be a part of a world empire that is against God and the result of that thing is God is going to come down and judge that kingdom in Genesis chapter 11 now, now listen do you know what we're doing in the book of Revelation? We're finding out about a king, a king of rebellion, who has been trying to get a world empire and dominate the world. And what we find out is once he does that, God is going to come down and he's going to judge the sin that's taking place there. You know what? It's the Ecclesiastes 3.15 principle. If you want to know what's going to take place in the future, just look back over your shoulder because God says it's already been painted out for you at least once. On this case, it's been painted down many times. But the kingdom is all about the Lord Jesus Christ establishing that and Satan doing everything that he can to stop it. And God says this fifth angel is going to come and pour out darkness upon this kingdom darkness and there's been several times as we work our way through the scripture when the lights went out on this earth I'm not gonna have the time to do with this what what I, I wanted to do but now just just follow with me quickly and it, the first time that the lights went out was at Lucifer's rebellion. Now we've talked a lot about that this morning. The fact that he had the throne. He was the light bearer. And, and, and he was uh, the anointed cherub that radiated the glory of God. He led sons of God to, to worship God and to love God and, and to praise God. And, and you see the Bible opens in Genesis chapter 1 and says, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And on that earth, from Ezekiel 28 what we find out is that was when Lucifer ruled and reigned but then in his rebellion he lifts up his ugly head and then we come along to 2nd Peter chapter 3 and verse 6 
And listen to what the verse says. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 6. Whereby the world that then was, that's that original earth where Lucifer ruled and reigned as the light bearer, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. And we come to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, and what it says is that darkness was upon the face of the earth. And so what we begin to learn is that darkness has already come upon this earth once through Lucifer's rebellion. And God is saying, remember that Ecclesiastes 3.15 principle. That which is to be hath already been. He put the lights out at Lucifer's rebellion and darkness was upon the face of the earth. We, we see another time when God put the lights out. It was in the Exodus, Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 to 22. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt. Count them three days. And, and what we find out is Darkness has already come upon the world. Egypt, a picture of the world. Darkness has already come. And notice how God describes this darkness, the same darkness that's going to come during that tribulation period at the pouring of the fifth vial. Darkness which can be felt. Incredible darkness. Another time the lights went out was at the crucifixion. Do you remember in John chapter 9 and verse 5, do you remember what Jesus said? He said, as long as I am in the world, I am the... I'm the light of the world. And you come along in Mark chapter 15 and verse 33, when Jesus died on the cross, it says, And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. For three solid hours, there was darkness on this planet because we crucified the light of the world. And there's coming another time when darkness is going to come upon this planet. And it's going to be where we are right here. The pouring of the fifth vial. The pouring of the fifth vial. This is something that has been prophesied all through the Scripture. I don't, I don't even have time this morning to go through all of these. You can see it in Amos chapter 5 and verse 18. And God says, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light. That same principle is repeated in Nahum chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. It's also repeated in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15. It's prophesied in Mark chapter 13 and verse 24. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 2. And what God says here in Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, is that fifth angel will pour out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and what is going to happen is the kingdom of the world over which the Antichrist has ruled is going to immediately going to be cast in utter darkness, a darkness which can be felt. And I want you to listen to the description that God gives of what's going to take place. And it says, and they, who? All of the people who make up that kingdom, the kingdom of the Antichrist, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. You know what's happened to them? People with, they've been burnt by the, the sun on the, those excruciating sores. Their mouth has been parched because they don't have anything but blood to drink. And now this utter darkness comes. You know what? You know what's happening? It is literally hell on earth. And people gnaw their tongue for pain. They're going nuts. And what is so absolutely incredible to me is while at the same time they are in such pain that they are gnawing their tongues, their tongues still move though. Not just to gnaw, but to speak. Look at it. The same tongue that they're gnawing with because of their pain. It says they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. And you know what this tells me, y'all? 
what it tells me is that people really don't reject Christ because of their unanswered questions, because of their philosophical doubts. They reject Christ because they don't want Him. They don't want somebody else messing up their little kingdom. And this is the reaping of that life. So, the lights went out at Lucifer's rebellion. The lights went out in the Exodus. The lights went out at the crucifixion. The lights are going to go out in a few years on this planet. But here's the one that really, at least for today, freaks me out more than what's going to take place at the pouring of the fifth vial. Would you listen real quick? The lights, for some people, some people that are in this room are getting ready to go out. That's what's scary. In, in the book of Romans, chapter 1, would you listen to verse 21? It says, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. Listen. And their foolish heart was darkened. For you to be on this planet when that fifth vial is poured out and darkness comes upon the earth, listen, it'll be because darkness has already invaded your life. Because you know what God's allowing you the privilege of doing it today? Through His Word, He's revealed to you who He is. And you, you have that assurance in your heart right now with what's going on. You know, some of you know what I'm talking about right now. And, and what it says, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. They wouldn't do what He said. What He says is repent. Begin to use your life to glorify Him rather than yourself. Neither were thankful. I don't really give a flip that God died and was buried and rose again. And God says, fine, but do understand that when I give you my light and you don't respond to that light, you're going to reap darkness. The darkness that will pervade in some of your lives as you leave here and begin to go through the rest of your life and you'll reap it at another time at the pouring of the fifth vial when darkness covers the earth. A darkness that can be felt. Where you'll gnaw your tongue for the pain. We talk about a darkness that can be felt. But oh my goodness, please understand that the merciful God of heaven is saying, I want to be a God of love to you and receive you unto myself. And I've died and was buried and rose again the third day so that you could. But do understand, you can receive that today or you can be the recipient of his wrath on another day. But it will be one or the other. You'll either receive the Lord Jesus Christ who had the wrath of God poured out on him in judgment against sin or 
that wrath will be poured out on you in the tribulation period and then on into everlasting destruction. Let's bow our heads. Now, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, I, I, all I can do now is just ask you to consider what you've heard and glorify God. Respond in obedience to Him. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room as we're about to be dismissed. And we're inviting you to come today to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? Maybe that's, maybe you say, oh, I'm not ready for that. Do you have questions? Hey, I'll, I'll give you that if you're new to all of this, yeah, you, you may have some questions and, and, and nobody's threatened by that. Or that, That's fine. We want you to have questions. If the Bible isn't big enough to answer, then hey, don't, don't give your life to this thing. But let me assure you, it's big enough. What, what we're trying to say here is, though, is that in the face of truth, Ultimately, we don't reject Christ because he can't answer our questions or because our mind is so philosophical. It comes down to an issue of our will. We don't want somebody else calling the shots. The issue of salvation is really an issue of who's calling shots. Will you allow the Lord Jesus Christ to be Lord in your life and call the shots that, that happens as you come and repent of your sin, knowing there's nothing that you could do. Listen, we'd love to talk with you about that. And if God's speaking to your heart today, would you respond in obedience to Him today? Would you at least ask the questions that are in your heart before you leave here, while God is at work in you? And now, now listen, my, my brothers and sisters that make up this church, you know what? Remember on that whole deal of what we're sowing in our life? You know what? I, I, I couldn't help but wonder as I was preparing this week. You know how it says about us Laodiceans, those believers in the last days? We've had our eyes open. We've been enlightened to the truth of God, and yet what it says about the Laodiceans is that we are we're blind. And I just couldn't help but wonder if that's because we take the light of God and we snuff it out by our lack of obedience, which causes us to live in darkness or being blind. Now listen, I feel like this God waving a big old flag today saying, listen, don't keep sowing what you're sowing. Turn from that. I'm asking you. Will you do that today? Will you turn from every disobedience that you're sowing in your life? Now, Lord, speak to the hearts of people that need to know you. Speak to those of us that do know you. But may we all leave here changed people today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.